0: Hello, and welcome back to The Science Behind That podcast. I am your host, Atticus Hamilton. And for all of you new listeners out there, The Science Behind That is a show where we take a deep dive into the obscure science of everyday life, into the science of everything from physics to engineering, and biology to zoology, and psychology to anatomy, we take a deep dive. So, without further ado, welcome to today's episode of the Science Behind That podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of the Science Behind That. I am Atticus Hamilton, your host, and today we are going to be talking about something interesting. We are going to be talking about four common household goods that everyone has in their house and we're going to be talking about where they come from and the science behind how they're manufactured before we start with that i would like to let everybody who is listening know uh i really appreciate all of you for listening um recently there has been a really major uptick in the amount of people listening to my episodes which i'd like to thank again all of you for listening um it really means a lot to me. And additionally, come December 1st, we are going to have our very special transition episode between season one and season two of the signs behind that. So stay tuned for that. That'll be a fun episode. So the four common household products we're gonna be talking about on this Friday morning here are extra virgin olive oil, sea salt or table salt, so salt, um vegetable oil and evaporated uh milk and we're going to be talking about where all these things come from and how they're manufactured so i think naturally the first place to start is with olive oil so (coughs) quick side anecdote here i was making dinner the other night had to take a sip of my coffee i was making dinner the other night and i was cooking a lovely um rainbow trout in a uh, homemade spicy coconut sauce it was tasty anyway and i grabbed my olive oil and i started to ask myself at first what i thought to be a silly question which is why is extra virgin olive oil called extra virgin olive oil um and then i started to realize that i genuinely don't know the answer to that so i thought that that would be a fun um episode to do and with a suggestion from one of you lovely viewers out there this is what we're doing today so extra virgin olive oil is made from cold pressed olives and so what that means is you take an olive you um, don't heat it hence cold pressed in fact um, some manufacturers will actually chill the olive and then you would press it the same way that if you're making apple cider you would press a bunch of apples to get the apple juice you're doing the exact same thing with the olive oil now that's it that is what defines extra virgin olive oil as extra virgin olive oil is that it's made from cold pressed olives so now i think after i read that i was like well i think the natural um, i think the natural question then is what makes extra virgin olive oil different from like you know just olive oil and the answer to that is olive oil that does not have the extra virgin stamp and we'll get into that in a minute that olive oil is made from blends of different oils so basically you take a bunch of different olive oils some of them could be extra virgin some of them couldn't be and you mix them all together. So it becomes sort of like a Jack Daniels blended whiskey, um, where you just take a bunch of different whiskeys and blend them together. And that's kind of the same thing here. And so then I, I did more research and I found out that, while the main difference between olive oil and then extra virgin olive oil is extra virgin olive oil is made from one batch of cold pressed olives and then you filter off and boil off the um, impurities of that and regular olive oil is uh, basically a blended whiskey just for oils i also found out that the the name extra virgin olive oil actually has nothing to do with the way olive oil is produced right extra virgin is actually a grading for olive oil Um, it's a stamp basically. Um, and to say that an olive oil is extra virgin olive oil, that is the highest possible grade an olive oil can get. And so what does this mean? So from a chemical perspective, um, there are different, um, contributing factors to, uh, to this grading right so basically one of the components is that the the olive oil doesn't possess any traces of fertilizers or pesticides used during the growing process of the olive trees that's that's the big one um the other one is that um there aren't defects um to the uh the molecules that compose the flavor and the beautiful amber color of olive oil and that is also on the chemical that's also determined chemically in a laboratory and because of this in the production of extra of what will be extra virgin olive oil you can't use extreme heat or any chemical surfactants and surfactants are chemicals that break up oil and you could use a surfactant to break up impurities in oil but you're not allowed to do that if it's extra virgin and so that's the thing when it's just regular olive oil you're not really sure if surfactants were used if there are impurities if there are traces of pesticides but with extra virgin you are you're certain that there is that there isn't any of those um, and yeah, so I, th- I thought that was, that was really interesting. That's, that's basically all it means is the extra virgin stamp is a stamp of, um, a chemical free oil basically, and, um, purity of the oil. So that is your extra virgin olive oil. So the next time you're cooking somebody with a friend, and uh, your friend makes a a crude joke like mine, my friends did about olive oil, you can actually tell them now why it is called extra virgin olive oil. So moving on now, we're gonna be talking about salt and where salt and uh, sea salt, so table salt and sea salt come from. So let's start with table salt, shall we? So before we can get into where they come from, I'd like to lay out this basic groundwork, which is once upon a time, various regions of the earth were underwater. <laughs> various regions of the earth, like the middle region of the United States, the uh, the interior portion of the United States, like Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, etc., that used to be underwater in the mid-Cretaceous, it composed what's what was called the... the interior cretaceous seaway and it was basically a connection between what is today's atlantic and what is today's pacific and there are many places in the world that are like that and so what that means is there are these geological structures that any of you who study geology who are listening or any of you who know a lot about oil extraction will know exactly what structures i'm talking about they're called salt domes and salt domes are geological relics of basically a time when that region of of land was underwater and these salt domes are are very important because oftentimes you can find oil from um compressed dead um Plankton, hence fossil fuels. And so salt domes are really important, but for salts, for like table salt, salt domes are also important. And in fact, table salt comes from what are called salt mines. And salt mines are exactly what you would think of. There are mines that go underground and mine these salt domes, these salt deposits. And so table salt is very, very heavily processed and there's a reason for that. Table salt is heavily processed because when salt is underground, you have a lot of mineral contamination, especially if it is underground in a region of what is now continental shelf. Continental crust, or the the rock that composes the continents, is composed primarily of granite. And granite composed or hey, granite contains a lot of um, radon and radium and uh, among among other things and so what happens is elements like radi- uh, radium will leach from the granite into the salt and contaminate the salt not to mention that underground salt deposits will have other minerals and elements like arsenic etc that you really really have to remove lead, copper, really nasty things that are terrible for the human body so table salt is really really heavily processed and additionally because the human bodies need iodine, iodine is pretty much now I think universally added to table salt to help with our thyroid. And if you guys want to hear a new episode about thi- about that, uh, hypo and hyperthyroidism, definitely let me know. Um, I'd love to do an episode about that. And so that's where table salt comes from, underground salt mines. And so what about sea salt? So sea salt is, it's kind of interesting. It comes exactly from where you would think it is, or it comes from. So... Sea salt production facilities can do a couple things. Um, Oftentimes, they will make very shallow saltwater lakes if they're right by an ocean. They'll make very shallow saltwater lakes and evaporate off all that water and then carve out that residual salt. Um, Another way to do it is harvest the salt from around landlocked, salty seas like the black sea um that is another very very common method of uh extracting sea salt and that's about it because there's much less harmful mineral and elements and elemental contamination in sea salts than there is in underground salt deposits so very very little um processing of that occurs So that was sea salt and table salt. The next one is going to be a really kind of quick one. Um, But uh, the next one is where does vegetable oil come from? So we talked about olive oil. We talked about um, salt. And now we're going to talk about vegetable oil. So vegetable oil is essentially... It's very similar to non-extra-virgin olive oil It's in that it's blends of, of oils from different sources. I never use vegetable oil. I always use olive oil, but I'm, I don't know. I like olive oil better than vegetable oil. Oftentimes, though, around 85% of the components of vegetable oil is soybean oil. So if any of you in the audience do not like soy or do not like soybeans like myself, maybe stay away from the vegetable oil. Um, But yes, 85% of vegetable oil is soybean oil. And so let's talk about how it's made now and and how it's extracted. So um, vegetable oil is a conglomeration of oils from different seeds, right? so here's how it works and this is what and this is one of the reasons why i don't like vegetable oil oil can be extracted from seeds in several different ways but one of the most common ways to do so is using a solvent now a solvent is any chemical that um it serves to be a medium for a chemical reaction to take place or reacts with something else which would be called a solute um And if you recall from the very first part of this episode, we talked about grading on extra virgin olive oil. And one of the things that they said was um, no chemical treatments or extreme heat shall be used. Now, there's nothing like that in place for vegetable oil, right? So when you get a bottle of vegetable oil, you're not necessarily sure, one, what solvent they used, and two, if there's any left. And so how does this work? well the seeds are crushed down into a pulp they are heated and mixed oh my god i'm i'm sorry ladies and gentlemen if you like olive oil or if you like vegetable oil you probably won't after this they are crushed and heated and mixed with the solvent hexane i have used hexane before hexane is very dangerous it's extremely toxic It is extremely volatile, and I have used it in the laboratory um, for various reasons. One is a sterilizing agent, Um, one is for a polymerase chain reaction, and I have also used hexane to forcibly extract antibiotics from bacteria and then crystallize those antibiotics. Moral of the story is hexane is not a happy thing to ingest. Um, And so what does a hexane do? Well the hexane hexane has an affinity for non-polar solutes so it removes the oil from the seeds so once this happens then we remove then then we begin the purification process to remove the hexane from the extracted vegetable and seed oil and uh this is really important because if you have hexane left over you'll probably kill somebody and not to mention impurities um and so how does this work well this works through heating the oil um evaporation of some of the hexane because hexane is very volatile and bleaching of the oil and so when you bleach the oil, the oil is heated and, it, and you mix it with various other chemicals that absorb impurities that are found in the oil. And that oil is then placed in a vacuum and heated and that evaporates off your other solvents, any residual hexane, and it removes what are called free fatty acids. And free fatty acids are really bad for human health then water is introduced into the oil and uh once this happens that's basically it so the last step of vegetable oil production is adding water to make it more fluid so it's not as thick that is how vegetable oil is made i honestly i gotta be honest here i did not know that they used hexane and uh that's very unfortunate (laughs) So that is why, ladies and gentlemen, I will stick with olive oil. I would recommend that all of you out there stick with olive oil or try to stick with olive oil if you can. Um, It just is the better option. Um, I've worked with hexane before, and while it is really volatile, it is kind of a tricky compound to get rid of. It sticks to everything, so... I'm always a little hesitant about products, one, that are nonpolar, like oil, and two, that you add hexane to those nonpolar polar solutes. Ugh. I'm not sure. That leaves me a queasy feeling in my stomach. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on the last part of today's longish Friday morning episode. We're going to be talking about evaporated milk. So, have you ever just, like, made a pumpkin pie and just thought, Man, I really wanna know where this evaporated milk comes from. Do they like take a cow, do they milk it and then put the milk in the hot sun and let off or let the water evaporate? Do they do a steam vacuum distillation? What do they do? So the milk is transported um, from a farm, obviously, to a processing plant. And so there are around seven steps to the production of evaporated milk. So the first part, you have two options. One is called high temperature short term method or HTST. And that heats the milk to 71 degrees Celsius or 161 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 seconds or the ultra high temperature method, which heats the milk to 138 degrees Celsius or 280 degrees Fahrenheit for two seconds. What is the point of this? Both of these things increase the stability of the milk and they decrease the chance of coagulation because they're de- denaturing coagulation-inducing um, proteins and cofactors, and they also are function as, as basically the first step for um, pasteurization. So they, they kill off a lot of bacteria. So then the warm milk is moved into a device which is called an evaporator and the water, a lot of the water in the milk is evaporated through the process of vacuum evaporation. And now for those of you who are not chemistry people, um, when you take a fluid and you put it in a pressure that is much lower than atmospheric pressure, that decreases the boiling point so the lower pressure a fluid is in the lower the boiling point is and that's what they do here they put the milk in a vacuum evaporation system um, and the lower pressure lowers the boiling point to around between 40 and 45 degrees celsius or 104 to 113 degrees fahrenheit and that evaporates off a lot of the water. And so afterwards you're left with milk solids uh, with a concentration of about 30 to 40 percent solid milk to solid. And um, this is, the, and, and what that means is you basically have 30 to 40 percent of the milk is in solid little chunks. It's kind of nasty. Um, and so you don't obviously you don't want chunks of milk ugh, that just sounds disgusting inside a can for pumpkin pie. So you homogenize it, and you homogenize it by forcing that chunky milk through a tube with very 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 tiny holes, and that breaks down the fat globules um, into very very small fat particles. And that greatly improves its color, its stability, and its viscosity. Um, And then after this, this is where you add some of the flavors. So you add stabilizing salts like potassium phosphate, and that makes it smooth and creamy. And that turns that milk, the, um, the classic evaporated milk, pale and tan. And then um, the milk is passed under ultraviolet radiation to fortify it with vitamin D. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. And then it's piped into pre-sterilized cans and it's vacuum-sealed and distributed worldwide. And so that is evaporated milk, ladies and gentlemen. Condensed milk is is much quicker. It's only four steps. Um, Basically, you do everything the same up until right after you um, concentrate it with vacuum pressure where it's 30 to 40 percent solid you cool the milk then and you inoculate it with 40 percent lactose crystals and that lactose crystals stimulate the rest of the milk to crystallize and um, the sugar then within the milk which is lactose preserves the condensed milk and then you you um, store that and ship that off to the world. So ladies and gentlemen, I really, really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know it was kind of long, um, but I had a lot of fun making it. If you really liked today's episode and want to hear more, definitely let me know. You can send me an email at thesciencebt@gmail.com at gmail.com if you want to hear any special episodes or suggest suggestions for the future. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, so very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and as always, remember... Stand up and question everything and enjoy your Friday morning.